Well, we continue this week uh, with our sermon series, uh, Postcards from God, uh, where we're looking at those single chapter books of the Bible, uh, as well as a few other shorter books like uh, Minor Prophets in the Old Testament and some other letters in the New Testament as well. And so far of these short books, uh, we have looked at Philemon, uh, Jonah, a Second John, and this week, the shortest letter of them all, Third John. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you're going to find that on page 1026. Well, like Second John, as you'll hear in, in just a moment, Third John is also written by the elder. Uh, the elder uh, simply being a reference to the apostle, the apostle John himself, who is now very advanced in years. In fact, he is seen as, as the elder statesman of the, the, the local region of churches in that area. His, his home base is Ephesus. That's where he's writing from and then extending uh, from there. And whereas 2 John was written to the local church uh, or, a, or churches in a local area, 3 John is written to a particular person in one of those house churches, a man by the name of Gaius. And as you're going to hear in a moment, 3 John is a letter of encouragement uh, to Gaius, uh, one of those house church leaders, and also a letter of recommendation uh, for a man named Demetrius. And he's a, a traveling Christian teacher who needs housing as he, as he travels about ministering in that uh, region. Now also you're going to hear as we read through the letter that John counters the opposing influence of Diotrephes. Uh, Diotrephes, a different house church leader who's been asserting himself and rejecting ambassadors backed by John's apostolic authority. And so with that uh, little bit of orientation, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll hear this letter. Lord, we do thank you for your word, your word that is living and active today by the power of your spirit at work among us and in us. And we ask now that you would help us to hear and to understand and to believe that we might know the truth and be those who walk together in it. Amen. And so the letter of 3 John, hear the word of God. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. And this is the word of God. Well, this morning we're going to consider the setting of the letter, uh, the reason for the letter, and the heart of the matter. The setting of the letter, the reason for the letter, and the heart of the matter. And so we begin with the setting of, of the letter. And, and like Philemon, Third uh, John is a personal letter. But unlike Philemon, Third John is a private letter too. Uh, it mentions common names of the day, uh, presumes a setting that we actually know very little about. Uh, some, some scholars consider this to be the least theological of all the letters in the New Testament. I mean, for one, it doesn't outline a list of theological ideas, theological doctrines, as the other letters. Uh, interestingly enough, it is the only New Testament letter that does not mention Jesus or Christ. Now, there's a clear reference to him in verse 7. But when you take a letter that is so personal and so private and try to put all the pieces together, it can be a little challenging. So this is where we preachers are grateful for the biblical scholars who can help begin to fill in some of the gaps. So what I want to do for a moment is rebuild the scene a bit. And so I want you to imagine a, a region of house churches. Uh, this region of churches is, is located some distance from Ephesus. Again, Ephesus being... The, the, the home base for the Apostle John. In this region of house churches, we already know that they're, they're facing uh, the challenge of, of false teaching, uh, something that is described in 1 John, confronted in 2 John. Uh, John has already written uh, to one of the house churches, but both his letter and his representatives were rejected by the house church leader. Diotrephes. Diotrephes is also talking wicked nonsense against them. In other words, he is spreading malicious rumors about John, uh, seeking to undermine his apostolic authority. Further, Diotrephes stops anyone at his church from welcoming uh, any of these uh, traveling ministers that are sent by John, and in fact, he's going to throw out anybody from his church who does welcome them. So not a good guy. Okay, well then we go just down the road to another house church, 
And this one has a faithful uh, leader by the name of Gaius, who's always welcoming the brothers sent by John. Uh, Gaius regularly provides hospitality and financial support for traveling Christians as they go throughout the area. And it is clear that Gaius knows Diotrephes, or at least knows of him, and isn't afraid of him. Uh, recently, Gaius has hosted and helped some of the brothers uh, who had been strangers, uh, apart from the letter of recommendation that they had come with from John. And after these strangers, these uh, traveling ministers, after they left Gaius, they, they returned to John with their report of Gaius' faithfulness. And also a word about Diotrephes' hostility. And so John gets this report and, of course, is wondering what to do. Because we hear that he, he'd like to make a visit. He'd like to go personally and deal with this, but for some reason he can't do so at present. But he knows that, that Gaius and the other true believers that they need encouragement to continue walking in the truth as they have already been doing so faithfully. He loves them. Uh, he wants to see this region of churches, this region of house churches, he wants to see them flourish in the truth of God's grace and not fracture in the face of hostility. And so John writes this letter, a letter of, of commendation and encouragement, also one that anticipates uh, his visit in the near future. And he sends it with one of his faithful ministers, Demetrius. Uh, whom he assumes is going to receive the same kind of treatment, the same hospitality and financial support that's been shown to other Christian travelers who have been ambassadors uh, that have gone before him. Okay, so, so that's the big picture. That's the backdrop, the setting of the letter. But now let's look more specifically at why. Why it was written in the first place. Let's now look at the reason for the letter. And the over, overarching reason can be uh, most easily seen in verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Or another translation, we ought to show hospitality to such people that we may work together for the truth. In the first century, hospitality was critical for the church, uh, for the survival of the church, for the spread of the gospel. Now, if you were here a, a couple of weeks ago when we were in 2 John, you might remember I took you back to high school history class, looking at the first century Roman Empire, and remember we talked about the Roman roads, how important they were, uh, how they made uh, travel safer and easier than it had ever been. But at the same time, acknowledging that hotels, at least as we know them today, uh, were still centuries, centuries away. And so when teachers of the Christian faith traveled throughout the empire, they relied on local churches for food and lodging. But as we talked about then, there were also false teachers who hit the road with their message of untruth. Well, as we saw in 2 John, the church needed to learn discernment in the face of such threats and to reject false teachers. But as we see here in 3 John, the church must also continue to practice hospitality 
in support of true Christian leaders. And so hospitality was critical. It was critical for a couple of reasons. Okay, for one, we know that hotels as we know them today didn't exist, but there were inns along the way. And most inns that existed in that day also served as brothels. And so, you know, not really the most appealing or helpful place to house your Christian teachers as they travel. And so the Christian teachers, as well as most Christians in general, that they could expect to find hospitality from their fellow Christians along the way. And what they would normally do is they would carry with them letters of recommendation. So if I don't know this particular Christian coming to me, they come and they present a letter from someone that I know and respect, and I go, oh, well, a friend of theirs is a friend of mine. Their brother or sister in the Lord is my brother or sister in the Lord. And so that's how they went about uh, taking care of housing for one another and caring uh, for the early church. Well, also, this hospitality was critical for the spread of the gospel. You know, we are so used to instant information. I mean, we, we are so used to, and you know, if you want to look up uh, biblical interpretation or theology, it's, it's just so instant. It's at our fingertips. I mean, literally now with smartphones, if you've got the right apps, it's at your fingertips. But we've got to go from the 21st century back to the 1st century. Because back then, there, for one, there weren't many trained pastors. Uh, there weren't books on theology and biblical interpretation. Uh, there weren't yet Bibles for reading and learning and growth and grace. And so whereas some of us have multiple Bibles within our homes... These people had none. And so you see that the early church relied on traveling Christian teachers to learn sound doctrine and to better understand what the life of faith is all about, how to deal with the ups, how to deal with the downs in light of God's grace. And so the church was to welcome these traveling Christian teachers. And as they welcomed them, as, as we see, that also enabled them, these churches, to be fellow workers for the truth. And you know, even still today, we're called to work together for the truth, aren't we? I mean, this is, this is why we support campus ministry, church planting, foreign missions, a local mercy, and, and the list goes on and on. Being partners in the gospel, fellow workers for the truth. And, and what's the fruit? What's the fruit of being fellow workers for the truth? Well, it's that more and more people would be walking in the truth. Okay, so that's now a bit about why, the, the reason for the letter. But there's another question that goes even deeper. What is the primary concern? What, what is the central issue for John? as he writes. We just, we just caught a glimpse of it, but I want us to turn to it now more specifically. So finally, let's look at the heart of the matter. <clears throat> at the heart of this letter, just as with 1 John and 2 John, is a concern for the truth. John says, verse 4, I have no greater joy. Okay, don't just read over that. Hear that. 
I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In fact, this word truth, is, it's used six times in just the first 12 verses. Then toward the end of the letter, John encourages Gaius to imitate good, to imitate the truth, to continue living in light of the truth, walking in the truth. You see, the heart of the matter is truth because truth matters. For the building up of the church, something that John cares deeply about, something that we should care deeply about as well, for the building up of the church, the family of God, truth must be proclaimed, it must be welcomed, it must be embraced. When truth is embraced... The fellowship is encouraged and advances. But when truth is rejected, the fellowship is wounded and fractured. In 3 John, we see that the truth is rejected. It's rejected by Diotrephes, in this case. Again, Diotrephes, a house church leader, uh, one who's been asserting himself, uh, rejecting the ambassadors backed by John's apostolic authority, is the King James phrases, verse 9, speaking of Diotrephes, he loveth to have the preeminence. He loveth to have the preeminence. In other, word, in other words, he, he is all about himself, building his own kingdom, not God's kingdom. Diotrephes refuses to show hospitality to these traveling Christian teachers that are sent by John. And as one scholar notes, to reject a person's representatives or those recommended by a person is also to reject the person who has written on their behalf. And so in this case, to reject the apostle and his teaching is to reject the truth. When Heather and I lived in Vancouver, Canada, uh, we caught a glimpse of Diotrephes. Uh, during our, our time there, the Anglican Church of Canada began going through, through quite a struggle uh, internally, one that was soon going to uh, follow uh, down here in, in the U.S. But, but at the time, watching the, the Anglican Church of Canada be in the midst of this deep, significant theological struggle, and the bishop at the time, the bishop of the uh, the, the region of churches, the Vancouver region of churches, was a man who rejected the truth. He rejected the apostles' teaching. He rejected God's word. And he also asserted himself against Bible-believing churches within that region of churches that he was overseeing. Uh, one of those churches uh, is, is named St. John's Shaughnessy. Shaughnessy is actually the name of, of the neighborhood. It's at the very heart of the city of Vancouver. It's where our very own Ron Pohl grew up. Uh, so he would know well this beautiful building. I mean, we would see it and we would consider it uh, a cathedral. But in the Anglican form of church government, the bishop has a lot of power. And as he was asserting himself against these Bible-believing churches, he called the head pastor at St. John's one day during Lent and said, I will be preaching at your church on Easter Sunday. And then, on Easter Sunday, 
he got up into the pulpit and he began with something like this. Many find the resurrection to be a good idea. Something encouraging and inspirational. And he went on to reject the truth of the resurrection. To deny the reality of it. I also remember a clergy debate uh, around the, the sanctity of, of marriage. And this bishop invited all the clergy within, uh, that he had oversight over, he invited them to come and debate, and he said, but there is one rule, you cannot bring or speak from your Bible. Yeah. Self-asserting, rejecter of the truth, who brought division into the church. Okay, and we're going to come back to that story in a moment. But for now, one of the things we also see in 3 John is we see that truth is embraced. It's embraced by Gaius. Uh, also, clearly, it's embraced by uh, Demetrius as well. But again, Gaius is, is another uh, house church leader, but one who is faithful and hospitable for the sake of Christ's mission. He's all about the good news of Jesus, building God's kingdom and not his own. Gaius always welcomes the brothers sent by John. He regularly provides hospitality, financial support to various traveling Christians so that the gospel will go forward. Gaius is a man who embraces the truth. Okay, well now back to 21st century Vancouver. Because as Heather and I were living there, we also caught a glimpse, actually got to see up close and personal, Gaius. Now, as the Anglican bishop continually asserted himself against these Bible-believing churches and rejected the truth of God's word, there were some who remained faithful and embraced the truth. And in particular, I think of, of two men, Dr. J.I. Packer, uh, one of my seminary professors, and also the Reverend David Short, who was the head pastor at Dr. Packer's church. We got to hear what was going on in the struggle within this church during uh, class uh, lectures. And I remember hearing about this clergy debate. And of course, like you, I had the same reaction. You cannot bring your Bibles. Dr. Packer and Reverend Short, their response to the bishop was, without the word of God, we will not come. Because we have nothing to stand on except the word of God. The Bible is our final authority in all of life and faith. In fact, I remember Dr. Packer wrote an article, an article at that time for Christianity Today, Why I Walked. And he was, it was about why he walked out of that particular debate. But I also want to go back to Easter Sunday. Because you can imagine... The horror of the, the clergy, the church leaders, and, and I'm, I'm sure the majority of people at St. John's that morning, that Easter Sunday, when the bishop gets up in the pulpit and preaches heresy. And toward the end of that sermon, Reverend Short turned to Dr. Packer and said, I have to address this. And Dr. Packer said yes, immediately when he is finished. And the sermon ended and Reverend Short went straight to the pulpit and he looked out at his congregation and he said, what you have just heard from this pulpit is untruth. We do not embrace it. We do not believe it in this church. We stand on the historical reality of the life, 
death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then they continued in their service. And when I think about these men, faithful men who stood for the truth, and they stood for it because truth matters. And the beautiful thing to see in those coming weeks was the encouragement and the strengthening of the church in that area. And I'm not just talking about the Anglican Church of Canada, but those of us who were Presbyterians there and every other denomination of Bible-believing churches represented there, we were encouraged by the truth. What is the truth? Well, you heard it summarized a couple of weeks ago. Second John, I, I, I love just the, the shorthand that the apostle uses. Just the phrase, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. If you're here, you, you remember we, we, we talked about it. Shorthand for the, the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Jesus Christ in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. The life, death, and rising of Jesus for us. The truth is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners. Like you, like me. Through the person and work of Christ, the giving of himself in love for us. On the cross, the truth is the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus. And truth matters. And why? Why does it matter? Well, it's that old adage, you are what you eat. You become what you eat. So think about it. I mean, are you, are you feeding on truth? Or are you eating junk food? You know, maybe, maybe a more helpful way to think about it, or at least visualize it, is this. Think back to elementary school. Went back to high school a couple sermons ago, but let's, let's go back to elementary school. You remember that celery and the food coloring experiment? I'm not quite sure what we were experimenting, but it was always fun to do. You, you cut the celery stalks and you put them in the various uh, glasses of water, and then you add the different colors of food coloring, the red and the green and the blue and so on. And then you watch as this colored water travels up the veins of the celery. And soon it is coloring the entire stalk and its leaves. Well, that's how it is for us. Because you see, whatever you're rooted in is what colors your life. And so it matters eternally what is coursing through the veins of your soul. And is it truth? Or is it lies? Because in the end, truth really matters. Again, John says, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Walking. That they're walking in the truth. You see, the truth of God's grace is not just the starting point of the Christian life. It is the way of the Christian life. Walking. Walking is a present, continuous action. Yes, we stand in the truth, but we're also called to walk in it day by day. And we do so together. That's how God designed it. That's the fellowship of truth. And that's the idea of hospitality here in 3 John, which actually conveys the sense of getting up under something 
so as to lift it up. And you see, we lift up one another by walking in the truth together. By encouraging each other with the gospel day after day after day. But let me ask you this. Who are you encouraging with the truth of God's grace? Whose life or lives are you speaking into on a regular basis? And then maybe the harder question. Who are you allowing to encourage and challenge you? Who are you allowing even inviting to speak into your life? Brothers and sisters, we must stand together. And we must walk together. That's how God designed it. That's the fellowship of truth. So walk in it. Amen? Amen. Amen.